as we transition into preaching the Psalms this summer, we're picking up where we left off last year with Psalm 26. And as we resume, some of you may wonder, why do we preach through the Psalms? And so I want to invite you into some of our rationale. As part of God's Word, the Psalms are instructive literature that form and shape and teach us how to live. But rather than tell us directly what to do, rather than provide concrete rationale for why we should live a particular way, as poetry, the Psalms show us or invite us into imagining a particular kind of life. Think of a a song, a mainstream song like Let It Go from the movie Frozen. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. I didn't sing it. So rather, rather than describe specific dynamics of people talking about her, how they might gaslight or falsely accuse, how they vilify and attribute false motives, the song is using descriptive imagery, a storm raging on to help us capture the chaos that is created internally when people talk about us. That type of language engages a different part of your brain. In providing an image of slamming a door, the lyrics vividly demonstrate what it looks like to reject the accusations of others while also identifying how this could shape a heart to be distant and cold. Songs and poetry use imagery to help us understand a particular kind of life. Further, the Psalms help us experience emotion. Men and women have been created not only to think, but also to feel. Understanding dictionary definitions doesn't lead us to feel. Poetry tends to. As you read the Psalms, or maybe as you sing them, you will be invited into experiencing and expressing many types of moods, loneliness and love, sorrow and celebration, anger and anguish, happiness and hurt, disgrace and delight, contrition and contentment. Some of you need to know that it is okay to express anger or okay to express anguish. The Psalms help us learn how to do that. Still others, we need to learn how to express celebration and thanksgiving. The Psalms help us grow to that end. And in addition to teaching us how to live and how to experience and express a variety of emotions, the Psalms ultimately help us learn more about Jesus. Jesus taught everything written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms help us understand who Christ is and what it means to be part of his kingdom. So the Psalm we're exploring this morning is Psalm 26. And the emotion it's engaging is one that we often overlook or one we often dismiss as Christians. Feelings of innocence, feelings of being blameless, 
It is a hymn where the psalmist approaches God declaring his innocence. But that declaration isn't so much rooted in God is good to me. That declaration is rooted in living out a particular kind of lifestyle. The psalmist has been walking in obedience. The psalmist has been trusting in God's truth. The psalmist has been seeking the Lord to describe his disposition. The the psalmist is using the imagery of standing. So our big idea this morning is standing strong produces a declaration of innocence. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 26. As we explore this psalm and this disposition of standing strong, we're going to explore the kind of affirmation it produces, that declaration of innocence. We're going to consider the way a disposition of standing strong advances in life. It isn't something we simply arrive at or something we are given. And third, we're going to understand that as we encounter the perspective of others who would sometimes falsely accuse, the audience that ultimately matters is not them. The audience that ultimately matters is the Lord. So three points, the affirmation, the advance, and the audience. So let's start with the affirmation of innocence one makes when standing strong. To better understand the context of approaching the Lord like this, let's look at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. So Psalm 26 is a psalm of David, but we do not know any specifics of the situation surrounding the writing of this psalm. The the passage is contrasting an individual who walks with integrity with individuals who falsely accuse and live as hypocrites. So, So many think the author is being falsely accused in some form or fashion. It would make sense that in the face of scrutiny and accusation, rumor and slander, the psalmist is seeking to affirm innocence. Now, some of us, when we consider the language the psalmist is using here, we might think this person, in saying they have lived with integrity, In saying they have trusted in the Lord without wavering, clearly they do not understand the fallen human condition. Only God is innocent. In Psalm 14, we read, There is no one who does good. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. If someone were to claim innocence... As the psalmist is doing here, we would assume that they are either lying or they are unaware. The individual making this claim is arrogant or making a foolish mistake. But the psalmist here is not affirming absolute innocence or complete innocence, but innocence specific to a particular situation. Whatever the psalmist is being accused of, the psalmist is saying, it's not true. It is slander. It is gossip. See, sometimes God's people are innocent. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 13 says this, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Back in Genesis chapter 4, Scripture records how a man named Cain attacked his brother Abel. Cain's deeds were evil. He was guilty. His brother Abel, his deeds were righteous. Abel did not deserve to be killed by Cain. Abel was not absolutely innocent, but innocent in this situation. In the same way that Abel was innocent and attacked. The Apostle John is saying Christians will sometimes be attacked, not because they are guilty, but because their deeds are righteous. As Christians live differently, others sometimes will hurl insults and label. They will say things that are not true. So it should not be a surprise when rather than a willingness to enter into dialogue, Some people who oppose Christian viewpoints label and shame. Rather than debate, we are vilified, transphobic, homophobic, misogynistic, on the wrong side of history, anti-science, anti-evidence. Christians are stereotyped as people who talk about an agenda but do not actually care for the vulnerable. Such allegations sting because we are often innocent when encountering such accusations. Beyond encountering accusations directed towards Christians, many of us are vilified in other ways. Someone outside our church was telling me a story of how, this past week of how they had chosen not to attend a family gathering. People within the, the family accused, you don't care about the family. You need to be a better person. Words intended to shame. Words intended to vilify. Husbands and wives are really good about doing this to one another. Remarks about how how behavior in the past, how you hurt others, how you failed to love, they come crashing into the present. Past hurt and harm is rehashed and communicated in painful ways. Words to accuse. Words to cause harm. The book of Proverbs teaches us how to relate to the person who is falsely accusing us. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So rather than return words that hurt and harm with language intended to to inflict pain, rather than root our response in anger and bitterness and resentment, God's people respond to a person who is accusing falsely with a form of gentleness. It's Jesus teaching his people to turn the other cheek. But while Proverbs teaches us how to relate to the person, it doesn't teach us how to relate to the pain. Sometimes the accusations keep coming. And sometimes the words spoken weigh heavy on our hearts. Psalm 26 teaches us what to do with the pain. To cry out to the Lord, affirming our innocence. 
So much of the time we shy away from this type of cry. As I reflected on this psalm, I was confronted with the reality, I have rarely counseled someone in the midst of conflict with others to approach the Lord like this. We default to a mindset that both sides must bear part of the blame. Neither is free of guilt. We have been taught a declaration of innocence like this must be rooted in arrogance. There is no way an individual could approach the Lord claiming innocence. Yet this is language in the Psalms to teach us how to pray. If you are in fact innocent of particular accusations, and sometimes you are, you should boldly approach the Lord declaring your innocence. Requesting to be tested, as the psalmist does, requesting God to vindicate us is not arrogance. But what we need to know, many times when we ask to be tested, we will be convicted. Oftentimes, something will surface that we need to confess, or something other than sin that that was simply a mistake that we need to take ownership of. But sometimes, sometimes, When we approach the Lord like this, it will affirm our innocence in a specific situation. In understanding what it means to be a person who approaches the Lord declaring innocence, the psalmist, like any good poet, provides us some contrast. The psalmist is standing strong rather than sitting sluggishly. We'll look at two contrasts in this psalm. The first has to do with the choices the psalmist makes. To be a person who declares innocence, a person who stands strong, they are maturing and they are growing. They are advancing. They are not static. So let's talk about the advance of standing strong. Here's verse 3. For your faithful love guides me, and I live by your truth. Because the psalmist trusts God, he walks in obedience. He is committed to truth. He seeks wisdom and counsel when making significant decisions. In private, the psalmist chooses positive influences of spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, meditation, memorization, fasting, thanksgiving. The the psalmist is reflecting on how his character has advanced, and in a sense, he is proud. This is something we struggle with as Christians. We think any sense of holding up our character is a rejection of God's grace. If we view our past decisions as what makes us right with God, well, that's a problem. But if we view our past decisions as affirming what we are trusting in, that fortifies our faith. As the psalm progresses, more of how the psalmist pursues standing strong is expressed in verses 6 through 8. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. The psalmist is pursuing purity. Washing hands is something people would do before entering the temple. The psalmist sings praise. The psalmist declares to others all the good works God has done. He has loved and he still loves the worship of God. The psalmist has a Godward orientation in how he is living. And this is demonstrated not only in what he pursues, what he, how he spends his time, but also in what he rejects. Look at verses 4 and 5. I do not sit with the worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers, and I do not sit with the wicked. 
The psalmist is using some repetition to state in a multitude of ways how he is rejecting what it means to relate to potential negative influences. Now, this psalmist is not saying, hey, don't be friends with sinners. The psalmist is not saying to withdraw from those who would not profess faith in Christ. The language the psalmist is using to demonstrate what he is rejecting, sitting with, associating with, hating a crowd, these are contexts that imply much more than talking to or even being friends with. Those words suggest dwelling with or being in community with sources of negative influence that would corrupt character. The psalmist is contrasting a type of life where one dwells with God, one is influenced by biblical truth with a life where one dwells with negative influences, rather than, than, than a community drawing us into greater holiness and worship of God, this community influences us to draw away from holiness and greater worship of God. The, the psalmist is expressing what we dwell with. It tends to shape us and form us. So one of the people I follow on Twitter, of all places, this past week created a thread uh, with the label, Websites You May Not Know About That Will Change Your Life Forever. Facebook. You can use this website to find out which of your friends and family are actually insane. Twitter. This website lets random people insult you and argue with world-renowned scholars and scientists as if they are peers. Instagram. Feeling too good about yourself? This website can help you by instantly giving you a feeling of inadequacy and crippling depression as you compare your pitiful existence to carefully curated snapshots of the young, beautiful, and airbrushed. <laughs> Amazon. You can buy books and many other items on this website while forming yourself as someone who disregards and crushes your local economy. This person was expressing a little tongue-in-cheek, we are people oftentimes negatively influenced by who or what we dwell with. What are ways we dwell with sources of negative influence today? Of course, you may think of scrolling through Facebook or, or Instagram, how it can sometimes form you, making you more anxious, making you jealous and envious, making you more frustrated at people you disagree with. It can certainly be used for good purposes, staying in touch with others or doing sermon research like I did last week. But it can be a negative influence. Or you can think of getting caught up in media feeds that shame and vilify perspectives of people who oppose particular viewpoints. As you engage them, you begin to take on a disposition of pride and arrogance rather than humility and gentleness. Watching shows that twist our hearts towards specific sins or dehumanize people that live a particular way. Conversations that confirm you should live a life centered on self. Escape from pain. Embrace the disposition of a victim. To indulge particular passions. To be focused on your rights and what you're entitled to rather than to encourage you to exercise self-restraint and sacrifice. In Christ, 
We tend to think that as long as we are not outright sinning in a particular context, we have the freedom to enter into any context we want. Psalm 26 would encourage a different mindset. You see, some things, they aren't sinful, but they aren't smart and sensible. There are things we should deliberately dwell with and deliberately not dwell with. But because we are so afraid to affirm legalism or moralism, the idea we can earn favor with God with what we do, we don't talk about these things. In a church like ours, we like to say, hey, great is our sin, but greater is our Savior, which is true. This is the foundation of our faith, but the foundation of our faith is not an excuse to disregard our actions and our behavior our duty as Christians. By avoiding these topics, we tend to uphold liberty and licentiousness, a freedom to do whatever we want to do. The gospel is not opposed to pursuing what is smart and sensible. When making decisions about habits and practices and choices, we often only ask questions, what can I do and what can't I do? Or what, what, what do I have the freedom to do? Anything that is not sin, I have the freedom to do. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I'll use dating because this is what I was taught in youth group as a kid and it's just kind of stuck. If we adopt a biblical ethic when it comes to dating to determine what I can do and what I can't do, well, we know sex before marriage is sin. That's a clear line. But if that's where the line is, that means there are all sorts of other activities I have the freedom to do. In asking what can I do and what can't I do, I might embrace negative influences and reject positive ones. I might not seek counsel from those who are wise. I might not pursue Christian community. I might expose myself to situations that rather than draw my heart to purity, draw my heart into sin watching particular programs that sexualize men and women, participating in conversations that talk about people's body parts, spending time together in ways that are unwise. Rather than what can I do and what can't I do, it would be better to ask what would be wise to do? What is smart and sensible? A disposition of standing strong, of pursuing innocence, is far more than choosing something that is not sinful. Avoiding sin rather than pursuing what is smart and sensible is often, that's often what we use as our compass as we make choices in how much we drink, in the songs we listen to, in the shows we consume, in how much money we spend, in the types of conversations we engage in. As long as we are avoiding sin, we are justified. Now, I'm not advocating making decisions that are rooted in fear or anxiety. That's a different sermon. But I am encouraging us to be sensible enough to recognize and reject sources of negative influence. Some of you have wrestled this out recently. I've had, the converse, I've had so many conversations in the last month where you all are making courageous choices. You do not like how social media leads you to get angry or, or feel bitter. You don't like it how, it how it engages, excuse me, you don't like how it leads you to engage others. So you reject it. Others, your relationship with alcohol is destructive. 
For you, choosing to stand strong means rejecting something that in and of itself is not sinful. We tend to associate the maturity of our faith in our feelings. Feelings of forgiveness. Or feelings of excitement for the Lord. Or we attend to associate maturity with what we think. Having thoughtful theological positions. The psalmist wants to push us as we consider spiritual maturity to think about what we do. What we do matters. To that end, listen to these words published in 1877 by Pastor J.C. Ryle. True holiness, we surely ought to remember, does not consist merely of inward sensations and impressions. It is much more than tears and sighs and bodily excitement and a quickened pulse and a a passionate feeling of attachment to our own favorite preachers and our own religious parties and a readiness to quarrel with everyone who does not agree with us. It is something of the image of Christ which can be seen and observed by others in our private life and habits and character and doings. Are the context you are putting yourself in leading you to stand strong, to grow into the image of Christ, to become more holy, more gentle, more selfless, more kind, more generous, to be more self-restrained and more Christ-like? Or are the contexts that you are putting yourself in, the people you are allowing to have a voice in your life, the shows you are watching, Are they leading you to lust, to be jealous and envious, to be apathetic towards life, to be more harsh with others? Are you putting yourself in context to be a better friend, a better neighbor, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent? As you grow in a disposition of standing strong in what you pursue and in what you refrain from, it will free you to declare your innocence. You will see the decisions you are making, and there will be a sense of being proud. That's an okay thing. This is the first contrast the psalmist makes to help us understand what it means to stand strong rather than sit sluggishly. The second second has to do with understanding the audience that matters most. So let's talk about the audience. Here's verses 9 through 12. Do not destroy me along with sinners, or my life along with men of bloodshed, in whose hands are evil schemes, and whose right hands are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. So so the, the psalmist is contrasting two potential outcomes on the day of judgment. That language, do not destroy me, in in the English standard version, it says, do not sweep my soul away. The action of being swept away is contrasting standing strong on level ground in verse 12. So rather than feeling swept away in judgment, the feet of the psalmist stand firm. In looking to judgment day, the, the psalmist is acknowledging The audience that matters most is the Lord. The psalmist is rooting himself in in something the Bible refers to as the fear of the Lord. 
This is not so much being terrified of God, although it, it could be, but it is more living in awe and reverence of who the Lord is. As the ultimate judge, the Lord is the audience that matters most. If you want to experience freedom when you encounter false accusations, live in the fear of the Lord. Counselor Ed Welsh, in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, he writes about how operating in the fear of the Lord, it forms our character in a couple of different ways. And he encourages you that, that if you don't feel like if you have developed this disposition, the, the type the psalmist is communicating, don't lose hope. It can be learned. Listen in. A growing knowledge of God displaces the fear of people. And it casts out our tendency to be casual with our secret sins. And the good news is that it can be learned. God is absolutely enthusiastic about blessing us with his knowledge. See, too much of the time when we encounter accusations from others, maybe from the broader culture, but more so those closest to us, when it stings, we value the opinion of others too much. They're the audience that matters most. We allow those individuals to be our judge. You don't care about the family. You need to be a better person. Words to shame. Words that vilify. Words that sting. They stick. These words shape us and form us because we care too much about what others think. So to respond when others accuse and gossip and slander, we could, like Elsa, slam the door coldly while the storm rages on. We could do that. We, we could embrace a motto, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, but our hearts will grow cold and distant. The psalmist is inviting us into something different. Understanding it is the Lord's opinion of us that matters most. Understanding the Lord's perspective, that is what ultimately matters. Welch says that this works two ways. It puts into proper perspective that the feelings of how others perceive us. Those individuals, they are not God, and we should not give their opinions such value and worth. The other way it works, understanding the Lord's perspective we reject practices that corrupt our character. We care about what he cares about, holiness. We are grieved when we sin. We are concerned when we find that we are dwelling with negative influence. Here's Welch again. It is good for us to have times when we are uncomfortable before God. It may not be a fear of punishment, but it may be a fear of incurring God's displeasure. Or it may simply be the fear or reverence that is unavoidable when seeing God in his glory. When we live in a proper perspective of the Lord, we reject valuing the opinions of others too much and we reject sin. We know those things do not please the Lord. And we walk in the fear of the Lord like the psalmist. It is the compass that determines how we live. When that happens, we will be able to proclaim our innocence. So my question for you this morning, how are you standing? Are you standing strong? 
Are you standing sluggishly? Are you prone to boldly pursue truth, leading you to become standing more firmly? Are you prone to sit with negative influence, leading you to become more self-centered or more proud in a negative sense? Are you standing in the fear of the Lord or do you value the perspectives and opinions of others too much? Are you slouching? Are you standing in light of something much greater? Psalm 26 is showing us the beauty of standing strong. How standing strong produces a declaration of innocence. And it's showing us the beauty of the one who ultimately stood strong. See, the psalmist, like us, is innocent in an incomplete sense. Innocence limited to particular situations. The ultimate declaration of innocence is only cried out by Jesus Christ. Only he is completely innocent. When he was persecuted, when he was falsely accused, when he was slandered, he was absolutely blameless. He is the only one who stands before God, the audience that matters most, and is able to declare, I have lived with integrity. Psalm 26 points us to the beauty of who Christ is. And it points us to the beauty of who you and I are in Christ. It's a picture of the innocence that ultimately you are able to declare. Because the house that you dwell in is Christ. As Jesus hung on the cross, his innocence was exposed. After having been beaten and bruised for the sins of others, after having been scourged, suffering an excruciating death, his final words were, it is finished. His perfect innocence replaced your guilt and your shame. In him, your innocence is no longer incomplete. So when you and I cry out, vindicate me, Because he was perfectly innocent, God declares us innocent too. We have confidence before the Lord. That is true because his soul was swept away into the grave rather than ours. Do you stand in light of such complete innocence? Psalm 26 is inviting us in to the beauty of standing strong, of understanding how the one who ultimately stood strong produces a declaration of innocence. It is inviting us to live in light of that. As such, may we be the type of people who dwell with him. Let's pray.